Well, hey, hello. Welcome, listeners, to uh, another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you ask, if we're asking yourself, what the heck just happened? Uh, Evan's a little more sedated for some reason to be, this morning. Yeah, you know, so. trying to be calm. He's, he's trying, trying to, to. He's trying to change the the tone and the vibe of our podcast. I don't accept that. I don't appreciate that. Hey, everybody! I'm so glad you're here today. Um, no, but if you would like to answer or ask questions, we would love to answer them. That's typically what I say. Um, you can send us to those questions in two ways. One is an email. Info at grove church is the email address. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or you can direct message us on the on Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. So we would love for you to do that. But yes, the start of this podcast was a little bit different. So you, you definitely almost said the Facebook again. I did almost say. Your, I don't know why I keep saying the Facebook, bro. It's, it's just your a, thing. It technically was called the Facebook to begin with. So uh, I was part of the original peoples, I guess. There you so go. I'm just old. Well, Aaron, here's the deal. I'm trying to provide you know some calming, a calming presence for the listeners. Well, that's as, a first. You know, it's been it's a hectic. <laughs> It's a hectic week. We're getting into some hectic books. Lots of, you know, listen. Maybe people need fire the high judgment. energy for their week when they listen to this podcast. Maybe, uh, maybe as I was driving into work today, right out of my apartment complex, my breakfast sandwich just fell and hit the floor, and I was oh, no. really mad and punched the uh, <laughs> and punched my steering wheel. Maybe, or, or maybe you didn't really do that, but most likely you did. Maybe it took a half hour to get our notes open for this podcast, so we're recording a little bit late. You know, maybe my heart. It's just not, it's not as cheery. Maybe it's sorrowful right as now. It might be, it's maybe, grieving. Maybe my heart, maybe I'm lamenting <laughs> in my heart right now. Well, there's a psalm for you today, my friend. Here's dude. We'll like, get yeah, to that in a minute. This is a totally off the top. This is 30 seconds. Here's the deal. Yesterday, eating homemade pizza, drop the plate on the ground, plate shatters, pizza's on the floor, pick it up. You I'm still like, eat it, don't I you? I eat it. <laughs> and then I definitely crunched on like some ceramic something or other, but I was like, I was thinking about it. It was all in my mouth and I was like, it's probably powdery enough that it's not going to hurt me. So I just kind of made sure to extra chew and then just swallowed. <laughs> and then this morning, breakfast fam- sandwich falls on the ground. I didn't pack a lunch today because we're eating out later. And I was like, okay, this is it. This is my chance to eat because I can't stop anywhere. So I picked it up off the ground of my car and I ate it. So two, my last two meals have been on the ground and I'm sick of it. I just want- You should be sick of it. I just want a normal meal and I hate it. And you don't get to eat till later, do they? So speaking of the prophet Joel- I have a protein bar if you want one. No, I'm good. Well, the point is like, because we're going to be extravagant and eat like, you know, food that's bad for me, I try to like skip a meal when that happens and do that. I don't know. You know, it's a whole like- I get it, dude. Trying to be healthy thing. All right, listeners, here's the deal, though. You don't care about that. You care about the prophet Joel. Uh, this week, we're kicking off a, r- a run of minor prophets. And so last year, you'll remember that we actually, I think we did all of them in a row where it was just a solid, I like, don't remember last year. I and say, if you do, listener, I'm you're, you're impressive because I don't remember. Yeah, I want to say it was like a solid eight or nine weeks of just minor prophets. And That's so brutal. We, we went for Who it. Who chose that plan? I, well, I think yeah, it was me. That was us. Uh, <laughs> this week, though, we are starting off some more minor prophets. We already talked about Jonah. So he's the only one that's kind of been off on his own. We talked about him earlier. Um, and then this week, we're going to talk about some of his contemporaries. So if you, and I didn't know this until I started researching um, actually for a, a message I spoke on Jonah. Um, but the way that the 12 minor prophets are organized is by date. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah are all in one uh, era. Era. time time era. Yeah, era. Not obviously not all at the exact same time, but all in the same relative era. And then uh, 
Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah are in the next era. And then mm-hmm. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are in the next era. The final tier. Yeah, and they're pre-exil- or post-exilic. So in- interesting there. So these ones are all going to be not necessarily knowing each other, not necessarily doing their ministry at the exact same time, but in the same there's basic overlap, era. Yeah. Yeah, and, there's, and there's definitely overlap with uh, a few of them. So there you go. I realized I just did that off the top of my head and I have it written in my notes. So hey, like, good work. Like a dummy. <laughs> I was just like, I was straining to remember it. Uh, so everything we know about Joel is found in the first sentence of the book where it says the word of the Lord came to Joel, the prophet. So, well, At least we know he's a prophet for real. <laughs> there you go. All right. Good deals. Uh, not, a, not a ton. And then we'll just kind of jump right into it here. Joel would have been a prophet in Judah. This is where his, uh, this is where his message is going towards. And chapter one begins with a prophecy of locusts. So sweet. Not good. A plague of locusts, I should say. Not a prophecy that there will be some locusts, because obviously <laughs> that's just the way it works. Um, and I think sometimes like we think of when we hear plague of locusts, we think, ew, gross, that's a bunch of bugs, which I mean, sure, fair. Um, but to the to an ancient agrarian society, so an ancient society that relies so much on farming, this would have been a massive deal because all of a sudden it wipes out your food yep. and then you're starving. You're starving to death. So the, a plague of locusts is not something to take lightly. Uh, to kind of bring us home, Joel tells his people that there will be famine in the land, that it will be painful for the whole nation. So it's just kind of this woe to woe to you. This is what's coming. Um, but in the back half of the chapter, Joel actually gives the people of Judah a call to repentance. And this is a theme that you're going to see in almost all of the minor prophets. We didn't see it in Jonah because, you know, Jonah didn't want to give <laughs> that call. Well, there was a call to repentance, but I mean, I, he didn't. He didn't want it to happen. I don't think there was a call to repentance. I think Jonah was just straight up like, oh, a call of judgment. That's think, right. Yeah. And the response was repentance. Right. right. Correct. And then yeah. So, but I stand correct. Joel is, you know, Joel is a, a good prophet, and so unlike some minor prophets, I feel like I'm just going to get to heaven one day, and Jonah's going to be like, dude, come on, <laughs> why, why are you going to be so mean? Why are you doing me dirty like this? Um, and so he offers this call of repentance, and so this is in Joel chapter one, starting in verse thirteen. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. Pay attention to the day of the Lord. That's going to be a theme today. Yep. Uh, As... And as the destruction from the Almighty, it comes. It is not the food is not the food cut off before our eyes. Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods, and the storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan! The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of wilderness, and the flame has burned all. The trees of the field, even the beasts of the field, pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has delivered has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So what you see here is, and it, it's funny because it doesn't sound like a call to repentance, but the first line is basically put on sackcloth and lament. Basically, re- repent before the Lord, lament for what is happening, and then he, you know, call a fast, call a solemn assembly, go before the Lord of your God, and it says because here's the deal. The day of the Lord is near. And then he goes on to describe what the day of the Lord is going to look like. And it's not, it's not going to be good. And I think because 
Our number one, well, actually, I'll talk about that in a little bit. I'll talk about our modern interpretation of what the day of the Lord means, because it also comes from Joel. Uh, In chapter two, Joel expands on the day of the Lord. And I also want to be clear, this is the day of Yahweh is what it is. So when it's uh, all caps, remember L-O-R-D in all caps is actually the English shorthand for Yahweh. So it's the name of God. So when he says the day of Yahweh that is coming, our first exposure to it is the suffering that it will bring. Uh, Joel tells the people, sound the alarm and be ready for coming judgment. He describes blackness enveloping the land. He de- he describes people being in under- utter anguish. Um, he describes almost like a World War Z picture of raiders just climbing up the walls and on the roofs and coming Zombies? down to the top. Zombies? Yeah, it's like, uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, they overrun the city. And then finally, all of creation is quaking, like earthquakes are happening and it's being darkened. Like this is what Joel is describing in chapter two is as the, the day of the Lord that is coming. Um, now pay attention to the the transition from this dark prophecy to what comes next. So in chapter or in verse 11 of chapter two, it says, the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome who can endure it? And awesome there means literally inspiring awe, not the way that we use it today. Who can endure the day of the Lord? So right there, you have this just incredibly dark <laughs> picture where it's God's judgment is coming. You are not going to escape it. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And what I think is interesting there is that verse 13 is almost word for word the way that Jonah describes the character of God. So remember when Jonah's upset that the Ninevites have been spared, he says, I knew that you were gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love and you relent over disaster. So I think... Jonah's either kind of like aware of what Joel has said here, or it's just kind of, this is a standard message that God has given to all of his prophets. And it is the standard message of the law. Like when yeah. you read through the old history, he is, God is describing himself in this way. But I think it's just interesting that they use the, basically the exact same words in the exact same order. Um, so there, yeah, we get this really horrible picture of what the judgment of God looks like. But then we also get reminded that the Lord is ready to forgive if we would just turn back to him, if the people of Israel, if the people of Judah would just turn back to him. And so, starting in verse 18, we get a picture of an even greater day of the Lord or an even greater day of Yahweh. And this is the one where it's going to sound familiar to us if you, uh, well, we'll talk about where it comes up later. But it says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And so, when, remember, on the day of Pentecost, when 
Um, the Holy Spirit just kind of fills the disciples in the upper room. There's tongues of fire that appear on top of their heads. They begin to speak in languages that they don't understand. They go out, they're proclaiming the gospel in all these different languages. And the people are saying, look at them, they're drunk. And then mm-hmm. Peter comes out and he says, it's not even nine in the morning. No, this is what was foretold by the prophet Joel. And he literally quotes these verses and he's saying, this is the greater day of the Lord that was prophesied in the book of Joel. So really cool connection point there. Um, and then when you read it, it actually does like, you, you realize, oh, this is how it fits. He pours out a spirit on all flesh. So in the Old Testament, what we see is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is a very special thing that only happens rarely, and it happens with one specific person. So you'll read about how this, and the spirit of the Lord came upon, especially in Judges, right? That language gets used all the time. Um, and then on Pentecost, what you see, you see the spirit of the Lord being poured on all believers. All Christians have yeah. the, the the empowerment of the Holy Spirit there. Um, you have your sons and daughters will prophesy. And that's where you see in the New Testament, particularly with the birth of the early church, those gifts explode. And you have um, dreams and visions. It's male and female. It's not just... Okay, I, I'm trying to think if, if there's moments in the Old Testament where it's described the Spirit of the Lord came upon her. It's not very often that it's a woman. Usually it's a man. I'm trying to think if it happened with Deborah or not. That's what I was just wondering. Too. Yeah. But I don't I, recall. Regardless of whether it happens, um, it's it's rare if yes. it does. It's significantly more rare. Where it's rarely identified in scripture that it happened. Right. Yes. And so in Pentecost, what do you see? Well, you see male and female disciples. You see when Paul says, and now in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. So it's the, the spirit of the Lord is being poured out in that way as well. Um, and I love even the sun shall be turned to darkness. Like what happens <laughs> when Christ is crucified? He's, yep. It's describing that whole moment. And then this greater day of the Lord. And then I love the ending where it says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Or in other words, this is no longer, um, Israel is no longer the nation that possesses the title of God's chosen people. Yeah. It is now open to all the Gentiles. And that's really what the story of Acts is about. And particularly Paul's ministry is mm-hmm. about um, preaching the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. So it's, it's, a cool, it's a cool connection to this prophecy from even before Israel falls and before Judah falls that hundreds of years later, this would be fulfilled in Christ. So love that moment there. Um, The final chapter of Joel concerns a prophecy about the the coming prosperity of Judah and the judgment on their surrounding nations, some of which has been fulfilled and some of which has not yet come to pass. So that's kind of always fun in prophecy to figure out how that's going to happen. And then Joel ends with these words, just because I always, I'm a big believer in just reading the end of books because it gets you an idea of what the author was trying to get across. So in Joel chapter three, verses 17 through 21, it says, so you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the steam beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and in the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. So it's kind of just this picture of there's going to be pain coming for Judah, which is going to be a theme, particularly in the next set of prophets. So this is still pretty early. The next set of prophets are going to be prophesying right before the fall of Judah. And their message is very much, hey, there's coming pain, but also there's going to be redemption. We see that here with Joel as well, that um, the exile is coming. 
Babylon is coming eventually and the people are going to be scattered, but then there's going to be moments where they get to go back. They get to rebuild the temple mm-hmm. that happens. They're going to be scattered again, but then the gospel is going to be spread throughout all of the world. And then it's kind of looking forward to this new heavens and new earth. And particularly the, the new Jerusalem is kind of the center of um, center is the wrong word. God is the center of it, but it's this beautiful, it's this beautiful city that is essentially like the representation for where um, we get to dwell and talking about how now in that moment, there's no more strangers or in other words that the people who dwell in the city are all going to love God. And then that, and that's going to be who is there and looking forward to um, the inhabitants being there for generations and that the Lord will dwell there himself. So really cool picture of essentially, and this is also, sorry, I should say this is open-handed as far as how you interpret this. I would interpret this as kind of um, the return of Christ is what is what it's getting at Mm -hmm. where the Lord dwells with us in Zion. So kind of a cool, a cool book there is not the only minor prophet that we'll be hitting this week, but he is the first that we'll be reading about. Yes. And then we're also going to be hitting second Timothy, uh, so I'm going to work us through Second Timothy. Uh, obviously, we worked through First Timothy last week. Uh, so Second Timothy is, is obviously, the, the, I mean, it goes without saying, but the second uh, letter written by Paul to Timothy. Whoa! Uh, mind blown. Uh, we see um, during this specific letter uh, that Paul will mention uh, a few different things. Uh, and so he's writing, and I, lo- I actually think that the the depth of his relationship with Timothy, the depth of his sincere love and concerning care for Timothy is, is actually shown more in second Timothy than first. Um, and, but you, you'll see that Paul will mention a, a few different things or, or several people have abandoned him. Uh, he's still in prison at this point, obviously. Um, that, and then several others are away. So he's feeling pretty lonely, uh, in some regards. And so he longs to see Timothy. Um, he rec- recollects, uh, Timothy's d- devotion and sincerity, um, as well as he also sees death coming. Um, he knows that at the end, he's in the last stage of his life. Um, and, I, and I believe in light of this book specifically, it will enhance what Paul is saying to Timothy. Um, we can break it down in a few, probably four different uh, sections. And so I'm just going to kind of work through them. Uh, the first one is just this opening, uh, like this typical of Pauline letters. Uh, he, he opens in a typical way, but I want to read this because there's a nuance here that I think is important. It says this in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Uh, so he affirms his apostleship. He affirms his call. Uh, and then he says this to Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, you've got to remember he's, he's seeing the end of his life and he's writing to Timothy in a season of uh, alone. Like he's lonely. Um, he's got Luke with him, which he'll address at the end, more towards the end of the letter. Um, but everyone else is out on mission. They're on an assignment or they've deserted him. And so he, he's re- recollecting, he's at the end of his life. He's looking and reflecting and writing to Timothy, who he calls his spiritual son. Uh, and so there's this deep sincerity where you, you Paul, who will open up and establish himself as, a, as an apostle of Christ uh, by God's will. Uh, but then he stops and, and has a very sincere moment with Timothy there. Um, and so there's a typical opening that we find. We also will see this um, section, uh, in the rest of chapter one into part of chapter two, this idea uh, to exhort. He's exhorting Timothy at this point to endure for the gospel. Um, and so he takes a moment right after the acknowledgement of uh, Timothy, who's a dearly loved um, individual, dearly loved son. And then he uh, is is writing just a thanks. Uh, he's thanking uh, it's, it's a Thanksgiving for Timothy's sincere faith. That's the way to say it. So uh, I'm going to read this because again, you see these, uh, this such this deep, personal, intimate 
uh, moment with Paul to Timothy. He says this in verse three, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did. When I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, remembering your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I don't remember of any other Pauline literature or, or letters where he talks about seeing and remembering people's tears. Uh, and that shows this depth and that shows this, this, this deep relationship that exists between Paul and Timothy. Um, and then he longs to see him. He, he there's the, he, Timothy is always a joy to him. And that's why you see, even in the first letter, the, the affirmation, the encouragement, the exhortation to do what God has called him to do. Uh, Paul continues, says, I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. And now I'm convinced is in you also. Again, that deep relationship exists. You see. Uh, because he's now also remembering the the family as well. And it's not just Timothy, who was a spiritual son, but he remembers uh, his grandmother and his mother. Now, which is interesting because sometimes you see in scripture that oftentimes the male, the father is the one who carries the head, the headship of the house. Um, so there's some, there's some nuances here where Timothy's father may not be around or something happened to Timothy's dad or, but what we do is we see the affirmation of Lois, his grandmother and Eunice's mom, um, and then he says, therefore, I remind you. And I think this is, this is pretty important. He, he reflects on Timothy's uh, heritage, his history, his family. He reflects on the, affirm, the affirmation of his faith. Uh, and then he says, therefore, because of this, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of one, one of power, love, and sound judgment. Uh, and I just love that the, the, the challenge and the and the 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 personal intimacy that exists between Paul and Timothy, because he even takes ownership for uh, God God calling and establishing Timothy. Now he doesn't take an arrogant ownership; he takes a humble posture, recognizing that it was through the ministry that God called him to do that Timothy was then called as well, uh, and he got to be a very big part in mentoring, discipling, developing, and empowering. Uh, enabling, not empowering, because that's a Holy Spirit thing, but enabling Timothy uh, to step into God's call. Now he takes a very strong ownership in encouraging and challenging and, and affirming him in that. Uh, and so he, he takes a moment as he shifts and he, he exhorts him, Timothy to endure for the gospel. Uh, we'll see throughout the rest of the chapter, uh, just this this idea to be bold, uh, to boldly endure in ministry. He talks about some of these examples, the positives and the negatives, those who left him. You'll see that in, in chapter one there. You'll see, hey, they, they left me. They deserted me. But these ones are out doing the work of God that has called them to. And so he affirms his, his loneliness. Um, and then he shifts into the final part, you know, you see, you see the very beginning of chapter two, but the final part of the second section of second Timothy, uh, a part two of, of the call to be, to, uh, endure boldly in ministry and face of everything. And he, he takes a moment to then process through the false teachers. He, uh, he's affirming Timothy and all that he has done and all that he's been. Um, and then he then shifts the conversation. Um, he then talks about these false teachers. And you'll see in the last part of chapter two, Paul will introduce false teachers in comparison to Timothy. It's, it's this compare and contrast. You'll see Timothy compared and contrasted against the false teachers. So Paul introduces the false teachers and then he describes the false teachers. So again, it's this contrasting moment you'll see in the first part of chapter two. Uh, but I want to I read the description that Paul gives uh, these false teachers in chapter three, the first nine verses there. It says this, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. Again, it's the pause at the end of his life. He knows Christ is returning and going to come again. And he takes personally, which I think all of us Christians need to understand, we are called to take personally the, the, 
the return of Christ. And he wants to empower and encourage and remind the followers of Christ, especially Timothy, that Jesus is coming again. And so in the last days, as we arrive to those conclusions and those moments, we see throughout scripture, different glimpses of what's going to happen. But he says this in verse two, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the firm form of godliness, but denying its power. And he says these three words, avoid these people. Which is funny because that's actually how you've described me to others before. Yeah, it's actually was that reference a, that I wrote a, for you a, years ago. A reckless kidding. traitor who's conceited. <laughs> and loves pleasure rather than God. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but like it's it's interesting that Paul is is very, very blunt in his description of um, the false teachers. And in the section prior to this, he's he's contrasting Timothy, who does not look or live or appear to be like these false teachers. Then he just says, avoid these people. I think it's, if I'm, if I'm reading this as a modern day Christian, not a pastor, right? I think it's important to understand, like there are people in my life that I have to make sure I'm avoiding ongoing relationship because they will then influence how I live my life. Um, and, and Paul is, is so passionate about the standard of God's call that he's affirming and reminding Timothy avoid people who look like this, who are lovers of self, who love money, who are boastful, who are proud, who are demeaning, disobedient to parents. That's a big one. <laughs> Ungrateful, unholy. He just makes these massive lists. And then I think one of the things that is is so, I mean, here's the thing, a quick side note. I'm going to be honest with you. We could spend so much time in Second Timothy. As I was reading through it and I'm trying to break it down, like, man, I want to hit that. Man, we should talk about that. Man, we should really dive into that. And I don't have time to. So my hope is as you read it this week, that there's going to be moments of poignancy and moments of, of reflection where the Holy Spirit would stir in each of your hearts, like a, a pause, a reflection, because there's something significant about what Paul is telling Timothy in this letter that is so applicable to us today in, in 2022, uh, in September of 2022, which is so crazy. The year's almost over. Um, but oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's, it's coming, by. guys. Christmas is almost here. Uh, I'm waiting for my uh, some people on my my friends list to start posting how many how many days till Christmas. Anyways, um, so Paul tells Timothy, and he says, "Holding the form of godliness, but denying its power." It's this idea like they appear to be holy, they appear to be godly, but they're not because they don't walk in the authority and the power and the power of the Holy Spirit. Avoid these people, for among them, and he continues, are are those who are war- who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And this was interesting. I had to look this up. It says, just as Janus and John, John Breeze, or John Breeze is what I want to say, but I don't think it's accurate, resisted Moses. So they also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Janus and John Breeze. I had to, I was like, who the heck are these guys? I've never heard of them yeah. in the Bible. These are the, 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 the two magicians that opposed Moses with Pharaoh. 
and in really? an extra oh. Jewish account that we, we we see in literature from uh, not in scripture, obviously, because they're not named in scripture. Because again, remember the purpose of scripture. It's not to always, it's not to give you a deep, detailed, exhaustive description of what happened. Mm-hmm. But it, there's a redemptive story interwoven throughout scripture. But in Jewish literature, we find that these are the names given to those two magicians of pharaohs that oppose Moses. Interesting. And so, and it, they would have been well known to the Jewish culture at the time. So, uh, so t- Paul would have known them. Timothy would have known who these guys were. Uh, so he can call them out by name. So I thought it was really interesting to be like, huh, int- like I just, I'd never, and in all the times of reading Second Timothy, I don't ever remember coming across, yeah, I wonder who those are. Um, well, it is a thing that some of, because it's Jude, right? That mentions some things from the book of Enoch and like Michael, the archangel fighting over Moses. I think so, body. yes. I think it's, it's for sure one it of is the Jude, yes. yeah. So the, it's, it's something that sometimes the, the New Testament epistle writers get into is they reference extra biblical Jewish accounts. Yeah, because they, again, it's just, it's another way to to see the depth and, and the, the not the validity, but the authority of scripture of the time too. Uh, so anyway, so it just, Paul is literally challenging Timothy, watch who you're around, watch who you're giving influence to, watch who you're giving, he's not, I don't think Paul is saying in this, and maybe I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth and I want to be careful here. Paul's not saying just to avoid ungodly people. Paul's reference here is to remind Timothy to be mindful of who he's surrounding himself with. In other words, who he's being influenced by, who's affirming, who's encouraging, who's sharpening, who's making him better as a follower of Jesus. I think that's the tension here that's created. Uh, and Paul, you see, again, it's this deep fatherly love for his spiritual son, Timothy. So you see that in the second, you know, in, in, in the very beginning of chapter two here. Um, we'll see this this third section, if, if, if I can break it down this way, but the idea, Paul then exhorts Timothy in contrast to the, to the false teacher. So Again, he he's been spending time talking about the false teachers. He's been he's been calling them out. He's been describing them, and then he shifts the focus back to Timothy, uh, and he has this section again. The, these are I mean these are chapters. These last this last chapter, uh, chapter three and chapter in the beginning of chapter four are incredible chapters that I wish we could spend more time in. Uh, but I'm just trying to give you a broad stroke of it. Uh, but you're going to find that Paul is going to challenge Timothy to hold fast to the faith, hold fast to what he believed, and follow Paul's example. Uh, and then he says this is, is, is what I referred to as the ultimate charge in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Uh, and it says this, I solemnly charge you before God. And I, and I think this is so poignant because I remember hearing this when I, uh, when I became ordained as a pastor within, within the, um, our denomination. Um, they read this passage as part of it as they handed me my Bible to me. It, it says, so it's almost as if Paul, I had this moment where it's almost like Paul was saying it back to me. He says, I solemnly charge you before God and Jesus Christ, who is the, going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and they will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is close. And he's talking about his death. He's not talking about the he moving on to another prison. He's talking about the end of my life is coming. And he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give me on that day, not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And I had this moment as I was reading this uh, today, just thinking about some of the people that I've had opportunity to 
to be in a relationship with, um, Bill Clune, it comes to my mind, who was a uh, senior in the church when I came 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And he was one of those guys that I could just sit down with and just listen to. Great, he, great stories, Bill. <laughs> great, not just great stories, right? He had phenomenal stories. He was one of the last remaining, uh, not remaining, but he was one of the last um, prison guards of Alcatraz. prison guards of Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of the right term. I was going to say officers, but prison guards of Alcatraz before they shut it down. Uh, so he had so many stories about that. But for me, that the things that were so powerful and so potent were those last little moments and quips. I remember visiting him in a care center at one point and he'd just talk about, he'd see the end of his life coming and he'd just say, Aaron, stay faithful, endure, endure till the end because Jesus is worth it. Like I just remember these moments. And so I could, I could kind of get a glimpse in that moment where Timothy is hearing these words of Paul and the depth and the, 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 the power and the weight that those words would carry for Timothy are so extravagant that I can't fathom them, but I could get a glimpse of them with, with an individual like Bill Clune or uh, John Eilander, yeah, another great pillar of the faith here at the church that we're part of. Uh, there's just incredible people, like uh, one that's currently still alive, Dwayne Stewart. Like I, I, To sit down and just spend time and just hear them talk about their faith and talk about what it looks like, there's just so many different things that I think are so powerful and poignant. Um, but this is, that, this is that exchange. This is that Pauline moment handing off to Timothy, I could see him almost handing him the word of God, preach the word, be bold. Um, and I think it's, it was so, for me, it was so cool to see that, but I think it's also important to realize this is like, this is like Paul's last little bit of things that he's saying. He's, he's writing loose ends, writing the letters that need to be written to. He caught wind of some false teachers. He challenged Timothy in light of the false teachers. He said, don't associate with these people. Um, surround yourself with the right people. Uh, and then he concludes his letter as normal. Um, he has particular things he highlights. He even uh, he even reflects on uh, the different people that are with him. He, and then he, you'll find even in the, the last section here as you read it, you'll find the same themes that Paul's been hitting, the false teachers, the, the, the encouragement to be bold. You'll find those things creep up even in his conclusion of the letter. Um, and then he does the greeting. He, he, he still laments and he still talks about those who've left him, those who've stayed with him. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of where Paul ends it. But you get this last real final piece. And he still writes a couple. I think Titus is still something he writes at this time of his life too. But you get this last final piece with him and Timothy in such a powerful, powerful letter. Right. So, Well, yeah, 2 Timothy and Titus are almost <coughs> certainly the last letters of Paul. Uh, we don't know what order they would be in, but probably around the same time. is It's kind of he knows any day the end of his life yep. is coming and he's getting ready to send those things out. So, And and oh, that we would all be able at the end of our lives to say, I have fought the good fight. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I love that line There's so a few much. people I've used that in their memorials. Not a many, but a few. Yeah. Um, because I don't want to use it flippantly. Oh, oh, that's a good encouraging verse. No, like there's some people like this This fits, absolutely fits. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Well, let's get to Amos, who is our second minor prophet that we're going to be going over this week. Uh, he was a direct contemporary of Hosea and Jonah. And what I mean by that is he ministered at they're during the same set of years as well as in the same nation. So where Joel is ministering in Judah, Amos is ministering in Israel, uh, and then they're all three ministering during the reign of Jeroboam II. So the only king who got the second moniker. There's two. There's one king of Israel and one king of Judah who have the same name, Joash, I believe. But Jeroboam is the only one who's in the same nation. Uh, and then we actually get a fair bit of context about who Amos was. So, And this is relative, so we don't get a lot, but, but relative to most of the minor prophets where they just kind of get like, the word of the Lord that came to so-and-so. Here's the word, the end. Also known as Joel. Yeah, Joel. And we're going to get that with uh, 
Obadiah here yep. at the end as well. And he's not the only one, so. Yep. Uh, but we're told for, that he's from Judah, uh, which is uh, specifically he's from Tekoa, which is near Bethlehem. Uh, so he actually travels a decent chunk north to minister to Israel, um, which I feel bad about because a few weeks ago during my message, I specifically said that Amos was called to um, where Jonah was called to go and preach God's coming judgment to people. Amos was called to stay and stay with his people, which in one sense is true because you know, it's the people of Israel in general, yeah. but he definitely left Judah. Oh, he, yeah, he might've traveled, but he's, his, his audience was very specific. Yeah. So I, I let, I led people astray, but what do you, what do you Maybe. do? I'll give you, I'll give you a, a soft pass. A soft pass. Thanks, man. Uh, and then he was also <laughs> he was also a shepherd, so he's not a man of distinguished background. Um, and then I put down, although shepherds from Bethlehem have done pretty well for themselves in the past. So yeah, look, that's true. David's done, David's done okay. Uh, and then the first, so I, I I love the way that Amos is structured because I just imagine like the comedy of it. I suppose, which is it's, it doesn't <laughs> feel very comedic, but. I can imagine the first chapter of Amos having the crowds cheering. So imagine he goes from Judah, he goes up to Israel, and he's like, I have a word from the Lord on the streets of Samaria. And so people gather around, and he's like, the word, the Lord tells me that God, his judgment is coming. And like, oh my gosh, he's like, for Damascus. And then the people are like, yeah. And then he's like, and Gaza, yeah, and Tyre, and Edom, and the Ammonites, and Moab. And the people are just going nuts. They're like, yes, God's judgment, day of the Lord, let's go. And he's like, but that's not all, Israel. His judgment is coming for Judah. And then the people are just like, yes, because, you know, I, the, obviously the Israelites don't have a great relationship with Judah. They're just going nuts. They're loving this whole thing. And then, and then I put, and then it gets awkward. So in Amos chapter two, starting in verse six, it says, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trampled the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So all of a sudden, mood drop. And you get, so Amos starts off with declaring essentially all the surrounding nations and all these nations that Israel hates getting judgment. And then starting midway through, not even midway through, in the beginning of the second chapter, he just jumps into it's, uh, and by the way, Israel, God's judgment is coming for you. And then pretty much the whole rest of the book, he does not let off the gas on Israel. So it's, I don't know. I Obviously, this isn't exactly the way it played out, but that's how I imagine it. And I think it, I think it's a fairly comedic thing that he starts them off like that, and then only to pull out the rug from under him. But you know, what the you ESV got? is a lame version. You don't like the ESV? No. Ah, verse seven. It's verse. such a weird way to say it. Why not just say it? have I sexual it, relations with the same girl? Like, oh, come on, man! It's a literal translation. That's it's like the, so... that's the. It's called an idiom that was no, used. It's so lame, man. Sometimes you know, sometimes you know you just got to use the word for word. So what lame. did the Israelites say? Nope. Uh anyway, yeah, not good though. Israel engaging in some sin for sure. Uh, chapters three through six deal with the specific judgment that is coming for Israel. 
And then I, I put like, uh, remember, I think this was um, in the essence of the Old Testament. I think they, it's either out of the ESV study Bible notes, but they, they pointed this out, which I thought was a really good point. Um, remember that Amos has come up from Judah to give this message. So this is an incredibly, it's already an incredibly brave thing to declare God's judgment to a people. Like when you're in the middle of that city and no one's on your side, um, it's even more brave that Amos is like a foreigner in this land. And from a specifically, these two nations have a massive rivalry and he goes up. And he's just laying into him a little bit. So very, very brave thing that Amos is doing here. Um, and he speaks eventually of an enemy that will come from the outside, surround Israel, and overthrow them. Hmm. Wonder if um wonder if that is comes that, is that brave to be obedient to what God's told you to do? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Hmm. Brave. For sure. Yeah, I think that's the way because I, mean, I, I don't think he's the only prophet that would have had that that accolade as well then no 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 i think all the prophets are brave <laughs> well yeah okay but it's, I, just, I, it's just kind of a funny it's a funny way to say it i think because at the end of the day like when god, when god says go you go oh i i agree but i mean you know it's like it's, it, there's there's things that are the right thing to do but they're they're also very brave you know like it's it's the right thing to run into a burning building and save someone but it's also an incredibly brave thing to do as well like those, th- those don't have to be i just don't know separate. if i've ever heard him heard it refer, I don't know if I've ever heard that attribute and yeah I mean I, I don't disagree with the bravery mm-hmm. side of it it's just a funny way to say it I think even honestly and here's how magnanimous I am as a person because my opinion on this matters I think even Jonah's brave <laughs> oh absolutely I don't disagree go, with you there to go into Nineveh wrong probably wrong motivations absolutely but that is still a courageous thing to absolutely. do absolutely All right, so in chapter four, Amos is also quick to remind Israel that they have not turned to Yahweh when given the chance countless times. Um, And basically the point he's making is this is far from their first offense. And so he's like, hey, hey, spare me, spare me, Israel, your whole... And this is even like forgetting all... Don't give me your sob story. Forgetting all the history of like, let's let's, let's just even go to like the split, right? Let's like, because the, you know, Israel, maybe they're just like, that was when we were with Judah and Judah is the worst, but now we're by ourselves. Like, no, from, from freaking Jeroboam the first to now... You guys suck and you <laughs> haven't followed the law. You've been, at, at best, you've been building high places to worship where you've been commanded not to. At worst, you're sacrificing kids, you scumbags. Like, it's just not, it's not a good look that the Israelites have. And God continuously is like, hey, repent, turn back. And they're just like, nah, not going to do that. So, no great. No great, not great. Uh, in chapter five, we see this offer of mercy. So again, this is a theme that we're going to see in most of the minor prophets. There's the judgment of God coming, but there's also this moment where it's saying, hey, this can be avoided. Uh, and so in Amos chapter five, in starting in verse six, it says, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. Oh, you who would turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, hey, that's how God's described in Job too, and turns deep, deep dark, I haven't mentioned Job in a while, I had to work that in there, uh, and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkness and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortress. So essentially, seek the Lord and live, guys. Like this is all terrible stuff, but it does not have to happen this way. Um, and I also love, I, I didn't actually put it in the notes, I should have, but there's a, a running theme also of Amos where he's saying, you know, the day of the Lord is coming. And it's kind of this woe to you who trust in the day of the Lord. And so you can kind of imagine like when he's, at the, because at the very beginning, right, he's saying the day of the Lord is coming for everyone else. And they're cheering and they're like, yes, this is going to be awesome. And the day of the Lord is coming for you. And then it's like, oh, shit. Wait a minute. And I, think, I do think it's funny just because like, and again, it's like 
you know, when we, particularly when we read the Old Testament, but when we read any part of Scripture, as much as possible, we have to try and take off our you know modern glasses and look at it through the lens of the people who are there. The day of the Lord was not seen as like this incredibly positive thing, nope. and, and particularly under the old covenant, it was representative of God's judgment. Um, and really, the work of Christ and Pentecost changed our perspective as modern Christians of how we view the day of the Lord. Um, so as Pra- chap- praise God for that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, as chapter five continues, Amos also expresses a theme common in the prophets. Uh, Yahweh does not desire empty religion. He desires earnest heart change. And this is, I mean, this isn't even just in the prophets. This is all throughout scripture. God gets mad when he says, yeah, okay, you're doing the feasts and you're offering sacrifices. Um, but then you're leaving and you're absolutely just screwing people out of their money and you are, um, murdering people and you're yeah basically you're you're acting like heathens but at least you sacrifice a goat once a year like that's basically <laughs> what he's getting at like that's not what that's not what god wants um is psalm, is psalm 40 oh, which 51 where he says the sacrifices of our god is a broken and a contrite heart i can't remember it's the one that david writes specifically um Lamenting after, everything with Bathsheba. Yeah. Yeah, it's 51. 51? So yeah, so it, it's getting at that yeah. thing which David was getting at. Modern day equivalent, you ready to ruffle some feathers? Oh, okay. Ruffle. Confessional. Confessional? Going to the priest and repenting of sin every week. Oh, it could be, yeah. I think there's... It's the same. It's the same concept. I mean, they you live like hell throughout the week, but you go and you repent one day and you're covered and you can do it all over again. Like yeah. that, that's the same point. Yeah, and, it's, and, and to be clear, I don't think the, the practice of... Um, like if you're in a denomination that practices confession, I do not think that's a bad thing. No. Um, but yeah, like Aaron's saying, is your, is your idea, I'm just going to do what I want and then I cover it with this. Yeah, it, and that's... And that's and here, here's the thing, like it's absolutely going to ruffle feathers because... There is a there has been a a, a religion f- faith system built upon this idea of confession, which is a great a great thing. But if if we're just, I mean, it's the same thing Paul addresses. Like, great, we're, will you say we're we're sin abounds, grace is there all the more? So shouldn't we continue sinning? Absolutely not. Like, so there is this heart issue of it's not a get out of jail free card. It's a deep repentance is not just confession. Right. Repentance is understanding. This is wrong. This is not. This is not honoring God. That it's not leading me and helping me reflect God's truth and love in my life and the world around me. And turning away—that's repentance. Mm-hmm. It's 180 degrees. I remember we used to say 360. It's like, oh wait a minute. <laughs> but it's 180 degrees and walking the other way. It's it's going the opposite direction. Right. Um, and so, it, the, like when God's calling people out, it's a matter. It's their heart. Like, is, is there sincerity behind the action? Um, and it's so easy not to. I mean, I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, I'm, I'm probably one of the worst offenders. Oh, I'm sorry for that. Like, but do I really understand the weight mm-hmm. of what I'm saying? And so I think that's the tension for me. I don't think confession's bad. I think actually confess, it's it's biblical, right? Confession is a great spiritual discipline, uh, but it has to be from a, a heart of of repentance. It has to be from a heart, a broken and contrite heart, to use mm-hmm. David's phrase, as you already said. So, well, yeah, and David is um, David is amongst the worst sinners of the Bible, but we he's described as a man on after God's own heart, not only because he kind of goes through the motions of repentance, which he does, but also because like he clearly understands that he has grieved the heart of God yep. through sin and he turns away from it as well. So yeah, agreed. great deal. Um, chapter six gives us, I would say the scariest of Israel's or of the Israel oracles, um, pronouncing woe to those who feel at ease in Jerusalem and Samaria. So this, and I, I didn't catch this the first time I read through, but when he talks about Zion, he's talking about Jerusalem. So this is actually an oracle of judgment against Judah as well. Um, but basically there is this, there is this, there was this feeling that 
God will always protect Jerusalem. Jerusalem will never fall. We are safe within the walls of Zion. And Amos is like, not so much, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like this is not this is not guaranteed the way that you think it is. And the Samaria also, people just kind of being in that city, believing it's never going to fall. And yeah, I mean, Samaria and Jerusalem were the last two cities to fall. Or mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there's season Judah that held out, but of their respective nations, they're the last ones to fall. And yet it happened. Yeah. So and and, and it's going to happen. For Israel, it's going to happen. I think it's less than thirty years after Amos is prophesying. I think it's like twenty-five years after the end, of, after the death of Jeroboam the second, that Israel sure. falls in something like that. And then I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. And then Judah's a few generations later. Um, and it's and it's a warning for us today to be mindful of the fact that my salvation's not secure because I'm quote unquote a Christian, right? Because I go to church. There is this tension of mm-hmm. understanding security comes from relationship and, and engagement with Christ. So, well, I also think there's there's a weird. There's a weird nationalism that pops up in Christianity as well. And oh, true. Because we see it with, um, like, so like the people of Judah here, specifically hoping in Jerusalem. Um, we see it a few centuries later, where Rome is viewed as this eternal city that God protects, and yeah. then when it falls, it's like, I mean, in 410, it's basically like, yeah, the world is ending. What is happening? Like the Goths got in. What the heck? And then the empire falls a little bit later, and you have. Augustine, who's having to write about just like this trauma that people are experiencing because all of a sudden, and I think you can get that with um, with Christendom and later on in the medieval ages, you have that with the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy and all these different things. I think today, like in, in the specifically in, in, in the US, which is obviously where we're at, there's people who just think like America is God's chosen country that like, yeah, we're the, we're the instrument of his will. It's like, no, like we're, <laughs> we're no better than any other country that's been around. Like, it's just one of those things where... Um, we can marry our faith with our patriotism and neither of those things are bad, obviously. Um, like it is a good thing. Yeah. Standing alone, those things are not bad. Yeah. It is a, it is obviously a good thing to love the Lord. That is the highest um, point of life. And it is also a good thing, I would say, to love your country, yeah. um, not as much as the Lord, but it's a good thing to be patriotic and love your country and want what's best for your for your nation. Um, but sometimes those get married in really weird ways where you just tie it together as, as if the love that you have for the Lord is the love for your country and they can't be separated when no, they should be like, yeah. those are separate things. Yeah. And just like even in, in, you know, in old Testament times, like the reality is Israel was God's chosen instrument for that time. They did not stay faithful. They did not stay obedient. God moved elsewhere and God still, still used them, but they were like, they're not God's chosen people where everyone else is um, in, in, inferior, so to speak. So I think it's, it's absolutely really important to understand as followers of Christ, it, it becomes paramount that we maintain the highest priority to our faith above everything else um, and and live that out as diligently as we can and make sure we're not marrying it to weird things or other things because that's not what it's intended to mm-hmm. be. It has to stand separate and stand alone and away from other things, but that's go. a whole different side note. That's true. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting off on a tangent there, I suppose, but um, chapter seven begins the final section of the book, which is a series of prophetic visions. Uh, so we see locusts. Hey, we saw in Joel too. Cool. I remember hearing that before. Running themes. Uh, fire. And then God kind of drawing a line in the sand, so to speak. It's about a plumb line. And he's essentially saying that past this point, we're not going any further. Um, one of the priests of the land tries to undermine Amos. <sighs> Come on. So let's see how that goes. This is in Amos chapter seven, starting in verse 10. It says, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you. In the midst of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos is said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. 
And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it's, it is a temple of the kingdom. So basically he's just saying like, hey, you know, go back to where you're from, Amos. We don't want you here in Israel. You know, Jeroboam, and he's, you can imagine him saying this in front of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the greatest king we've ever had. He's awesome. <laughs> and you're saying that he's going to die in battle? Come on, man. Get out of here. And so you just kind of get that that vibe. Baldy, baldy. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> a, little, a little Elisha bear mauling joke yep. there. Uh, and then in verse 14 it says, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Hey, I, I didn't mention that in the beginning. He also dressed sycamore figs. Hey, so check that out. There you go. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not speak against the house of Isaac. Therefore... Thus says the Lord, which I mean, oh, that's a scary line right there. Because you've said this, here's what the Lord says to you. Uh, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line and you yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall go, shall surely go into exile away from its land. Harsh. Ooh, yeah. Amaziah, bad move. And I just, I also just love, like, I love the way that Amos contrasts it, where Amaziah's like, get out of here. We don't want you here prophesying. And he's like, God told me to do this. Do you think I'm just here for fun? <laughs> and then just basically, like, look, this is what God told me to do. I'm not listening to you. Speaking of which, I'm listening to God. Here's something for you. Yep. And speaking, <laughs> speaking of things that God told me to say, boom, lays into him there. So go way to go, Amos. Don't take, don't take no griff. I don't, what am I trying to say? Don't take no crap from anybody. Yeah. I, there's a different word I was thinking of, but anyway. Chapter eight is a vision of uh, a day of incredible pain for Israel. Um, Amos describes bio, uh, bodies piling up everywhere, the sun going dark, and, and the feasts of Israel being turned into mourning. So basically, like just in the midst of this high point, all of a sudden, massive destruction coming. It's a really scary picture, uh, chapter eight. Um, and then chapter nine is a vision of the total destruction of Israel. And then finally, after the ashes settle, Amos ends with these words. So these It's are the like f- you like to end with the words. I always do. La- I'm a big... I realized... Uh, I've realized this year that I'm a big believer in like, anytime we do a book, I just like to read the very ending because I think it's it's pertinent. Uh, so this is Amos 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the tree, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all his hills, all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given him, says the Lord, your God. The end. So at least there's hope. Yeah. Well, I think Amos <laughs> is one of the darkest books. Yes. It's very as dark. As far as, um, as far as the judgment in particular, the way it's framed and how it's just like unrelenting. And so it is very, it is very pertinent that it ends with this message of hope and saying that, listen, God is not fully abandoning you. 
you're, this is going to happen. He's done as far as like holding up this, this old covenant um, that you've broken countless times, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be completely wiped out. There's going to be hope and there's going to be um, a moment of restoration as well. And so it's, and it's, it's just an important thing to realize because sometimes we get this weird idea that like God in the old Testament is different from God in the new Testament. And there's all these different things, but it's realizing that um, God's judgment and his mercy are both present in both covenants that we get. We've got two more books to go, but before, yeah, we've, this is a longer one. Uh, Before we jump into that though, I do want to say like, Hey, you know, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, you could do that. That really helps out the podcast right now. Apple podcasts and Spotify tied dead heat. (laughs) Oh man. So I don't know if we're, I I love that we're making it a competition now who can get to a hundred first. Yeah. And I'm sure everyone listen. I came into the year (laughs) thinking it'd be really fun to see us hit a hundred reviews by the end of 2022. So we're well on our way. We're 14 away from each of those. I actually was thinking Apple podcasts only and then Spotify developed ratings and it's just been skyrocketing from there. So it's it's just fun to see uh, because every time I see a rating or a review, it means um, someone else has has joined the community and has enjoyed, and has enjoyed their time with us. So mm-hmm. uh, that's what I love about it. It also does help continue to grow the community and continue to widen the reach where we all get to kind of lean in together. Uh, and so it's, it's humbling to be a part of it, but it's so fun. Um, and if there is a written review, which I know Apple Podcasts allows you to, we do want to take time to just shout you out and say thank you, uh, much like I want to do right now from uh, what would be the username of the good word asterisk. Nice. Uh, with the actual asterisk, not the shift eight, but not the word asterisk, just for clarity. Um, but you put this on there and I just want to say thank you for that. It says this, two things I appreciate about the podcast. The most is it's very informative and it's very honest. You both are very knowledgeable of scripture and you both, or you are also honest about when you may be unsure about something. You don't try to portray being more informed or educated than you are. The best part is that it feels very relatable when scripture is being read and not too preachy. Feels as though we are at the podcast with you. Great job, fellas. Definitely a fan. Uh, thank you for that. I do think that that is something we strive for uh, is to make it be a conversation, not just us talking to you as listeners, but we do want to make that conversation. So that's also why we, we shout you out and read your reviews. So uh, thank you for that. Good word. I appreciate your engagement with us. Thanks for being a fan of the show. Uh, and we look forward to continue to continue to see the community grow. Uh, I'm going to hit two Psalms that we're going to read this week, and then we'll shift into our last book, Obadiah. Uh, I'm not going to read a Psalm this week only because there's two, so you'll be able to read them, but just give you some idea of what they are. Um, And I said this last week, I've been saying this recently, but I just want to say it. If this is your first time tuning in with us here at Let's Read the Bible Podcast, uh, we try and and take the Psalms as we have them and give you kind of a quick overview. um, Because if you're like me, when I read the Psalms, it can be so sporadic. And on one day, it could be like we're going to see today between 28 and 29. Uh, one psalm can be like this deep cry and lament, and the next psalm can be like this big celebratory prayer or or, or, or song or celebration. And so it's just trying to make sense of what's going on. They're not written in order in any specific fashion, but they're just uh, a bunch of psalms that have been compiled together to form the book of psalms. Um, so it says this, or Psalm 28 is the, one of the first ones we're going to read this week. Uh, and there's only two, like I said, this Psalm 28 is a lament psalm. Uh, the one singing it or reciting it is, uh, in essence, crying out to God amid for uh, amid crying out to God for help amid the threat uh, posed by evildoers. The one thing that's not clear is whether or not it's an individual or it's a whole community uh, lament. Uh, so it can kind of go either way. Um, and if the speaker, say for instance King David, you'll see in the title that it's uh, a Psalm of David. 
um, if it's King David, the one speaking, uh, he could be actually be speaking for either party. So there's not really clarity on what, uh, if it's community or individual, uh, but it can really go either way. Uh, but it is a lament type Psalm. Uh, Psalm 29 is a hymn of praise to God. So you see this like lament on chapter 28, then chapter 29 is a hymn of praise. Um, I would say one thing not to refer to them as chapters as a quick side note, True. refer to them as Psalms. Psalm 28, Psalm 29, not a chapter version, but Psalm 28 and then Psalm 29 as separate as separate writings altogether because that's what they are. Uh, so Psalm 29 is a hymn of praise uh, for God's awesome power. Uh, and it's it's kind of fun to think about for a second, like there's this comparison to a thunderstorm. Um, and it's almost as if there's a visible thunderstorm happening when David is writing this psalm. Um, and it serves as an emblem of God's majestic voice. Um, the subtle side note or the subtlety of this psalm also can be kind of a juxtaposition of God's sovereignty over Baal, because Baal is in essence the storm god. That's one of the, that's one of the attributes, the characteristics that he is referred to as the god who oversees storms. He's the storm god. So when you see God's sovereignty in this thunderstorm, that His voice is 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 like a thunderstorm, like the thunder in a thunderstorm, uh, over Baal, who's the one who's the storm god. You see the sovereignty of God being shown over Baal, and so the psalm really is a, a primitive praise. Uh, celebrating God's awesome power uh, and using a thunderstorm as a symbol or an emblem of that. Um, and I'll be honest with you, in Washington State, which is where uh, we've already said we were at, there's not a lot of good thunderstorms. Uh, having grown up in Virginia, I don't know if you've seen them in Vegas uh, when you used to live there. There actually were, yeah. Uh, but I remember in Virginia when I grew up that the thunderstorms were legit. Like I'm talking major booms, major lightning, oh, cool. big old raindrops to knock you out sometimes. Um, and, and so just the, the, for me, the visual, the visual of a thunderstorm, I even remember as a kid one year, um, having lightning strike a tree, probably 200 yards away from my house in our, in our neighborhood. And it would, the thunderstorm had passed and I was outside looking at it, kind of light rain. And I remember wanting to run over towards the tree to see the bark that had been knocked off all over the street and all over the sidewalks. And as I'm running, I hear this big old boom. And as a, like a six, seven-year-old kid, I'm running and I hear it and I'm like, nope, I ran right back <laughs> to my mom. Uh, and so just things like that, the moment of that where like David is comparing God's power, his voice to uh, to be emblematic by a thunder uh, and a thunderstorm, I think is so, for me, it's more vivid and more powerful than it was. So, uh, but that Psalm 29 celebrates God's awesome power. Uh, so those are the two Psalms we're going to read this week. Good deal. And our last book that we're going to be talking about this week is the book of Obadiah. Um pretty short. <laughs> it's true. It's, Very, actually, it's quick. It's actually the shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, and it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's theme can be summed up basically as like Edom, you're in real trouble. Judah, it's going to be okay. <laughs> so, I, I always imagine, um, I always imagine with, with Jonah that this is the prophet that he wished he could have been, where it's just <laughs> like his message is straight up. That's he, awesome. His message is straight up. Yeah, you're doomed. So sorry. And there's basically no chance for you other ways. Otherwise, um, I will say, so we're going to read a, a couple of passages out of the book here. Um, remember that Edom traces its ancestry back to Esau. So this passage here is particularly poignant. It says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. So right there, it's just talking about the the relationship between Edom and Israel should have been like the relationship between the brothers. And remember, they reconcile. And so Esau and Jacob are on good terms. And then as the generations go by, Edom kind of rejects Israel, raids, um, commit violence, commits violence and things like that. So there is, there is kind of a special... Um, there's a special punishment that 
God has for Edom that's even more than the other nations around them, specifically because they should have been a, a friend to Israel. Uh, on that day, you stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and the foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune and do not rejoice over the people of Judah in their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster. In the day of his calamity, do not loot his wealth. In the day of his calamity, do not stand in the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over survivors in the day of distress. So basically, it's talking about how Edom is watching um, the destruction of Jerusalem. And this could either be a reference to the coming destruction of uh, that Babylon will bring under Nebuchadnezzar, or it could be referencing um, the Assyrians don't conquer Jerusalem, but they definitely get there and they siege it. Uh, siege it, and then they get tribute and they leave. So there could also be, it could also be referencing that. And regardless of which one it's it's referencing, it's saying that Edom is just kind of cheering. Like the way that Mm -hmm. Israel's cheering, I guess, when all of this judgment gets pronounced upon all the other nations, Edom is cheering uh, the destruction of their neighbor. Um, Edom was also a particularly mountainy country. And so there was kind of this idea that, well, it'd be super hard to conquer them anyway, because they're just up in the hills. All their fortresses are built into rocks. Um, that doesn't pay off. They do. They, they are they are conquered. But, you know, hey. Sad day. Believe what you want to believe. Um, <laughs> after, after Edom's doom is proclaimed, Obadiah prophesies that Judah will escape. And his book ends with these words. These are the last words of Obadiah. For the day of the Lord is upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you, and your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continuously, so they shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been before. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess shall possess their own possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau stubble and they shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of esau for the lord has spoken those of the negeb shall possess mount esau and those of the shepla shall pronounce uh, shall possess the land of the philistines and they shall possess the land of ephraim and the land of samaria and benjamin shall possess gilead the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the lands of the Negeb. Survivors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule over Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So it ends with this note of the Israelites are going to essentially have their revenge. It's a little bit different, but it's essentially that they're going to come back. This destruction is coming for everyone. The Israelites are going to come back, and they're going to rule. And Edom is going to be gone forever, and only and people are only going to remember Israel, which is pretty much true. The only reason we remember Edom is because it's in the Bible specifically as a nation that's being destroyed. Yep, it's but, true. Uh, there's not very much left of them today. So there you go. All right. Well, we did get one question in. I thought we weren't going to have time, but I think we got time to yeah, answer. Let's do it. We got we got time to answer a quick question. So this uh, came came in and said, "Greetings, Aaron and Evan. My question will be with the book of Nehemiah, chapter eleven, verses twenty two through twenty three. Are the singers, or in the NIV version, musicians, the same who sing or play music in the book of Psalms? Would their provision be to sing or play from the book of Psalms to come uh, to comfort any given situation?" 
That's a fun uh, question. Yeah, it is. And so in Nehemiah chapter 11, just read the verses really quick. It says, the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of, ben- of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mat- Madaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of the God. I should have looked up those names before, but I just powered through. Uh, for there was a command from the king concerning them and f- a fixed pre- pre- provision for the singers as every day required. All right. So yeah, we do see this thing. I think I think like it's funny because we we think of Israel as being so different from us today, which it is. Um, but <laughs> there there is like historically, like yeah, of course there's musicians. Uh, I think they they weren't like as highly thought of as they were as they are today. Like musicians mm-hmm. today are kind of like our big uh, among our big celebrities. Like there's a joke that um, in Shakespeare's day when actors came to town, you would like put your like hide your daughters basically and like and no one trusted actors whereas today we like we we hang on their every word for what they want to say about things unfortunately um and i think i think musicians is kind of it's a little bit in the same boat not nearly as bad but yeah musicians are were around um and yeah i think it it wouldn't it wouldn't be that the only thing that they would they would do with psalms we're not told biblically but i would i can't imagine there weren't just there wasn't just music in general that they would be playing um but yes specifically like during moments of um ceremony there would be psalms that were and there's songs there's there's psalms that are specifically cited to sing and with musical accompaniments and something like that so some of them are more they have the vibe of kind of being poetic or even being chanted um but some of them are clearly meant to be put to music as well and so i think musicians in um musicians in israel were helping out with corporate worship helping out with the different uh the the singing of different psalms and also just in general like it's it's kind of yeah, you you had music around, I guess, is kind of a lame way to say it, but yeah. it's true. I don't know if you have anything you want to add there. No, I think, I mean, I, I think it's absolutely a possibility there. I think that because the Psalms were written by David and this was after David's time, I think there is a possibility that some of the things that they were doing, the provision, in essence, the job they were given would be to uh, to lead or to have, you know, lead people in song. And so I think there's a very strong possibility that book of Psalms are some of the things that they, that they would reflect on. I mean, I think of even the, the songs, Psalms of Ascent, when it comes to like the, the corporate body or the individual family units that would travel to Jerusalem to mm-hmm. offer sacrifices or to observe feasts, um, they would journey with these songs in mind. And so I do think there's an absolute possibility that they're singing the songs um, and that they're uh, using some of the Psalms as part of their framework. And so I think that that's absolutely a really strong possibility. So, but I don't know if it's the only thing they sing too. So right. but we don't have much beyond that. So, well, I think, I think to talk about it for a little bit here, I think we, we, ha- there's a pendulum swing that happens where we're very much today. The conversation comes up that, you know, well, Hey, when, when we say worship, we don't just mean singing, like in the middle of a, of a church gathering, we mean, you know, everything we do is an act of worship in, in a sense, um, which is absolutely true. But I think sometimes what we lose is that um, for all of the history of God's people, God has been worshiped through song. And it's been a powerful way that's happened. Like we have, you know, the song of Moses is very, <laughs> is very early on the song of Miriam yeah. and all these different things of, of deliverance. The book of Psalms, most of them are actual songs, the way that we think of them um, today. And so I think there is something powerful about, you know, God, God created us um, to be moved by music. God created, God created music. He created sound. He created these things to be able to move the human heart. And so there is something powerful about um, worshiping God through that medium specifically. And I think there's also something powerful about um, God loves to create and I think God created us to love to create as well. And so there's something powerful about um, when God 
creates the world and the beauty. And even the music that we hear just in nature between different animals that make sounds or, the, or even like, you know, the, even like the sound of like a river flowing and things like that. There's just this like powerful moment there. Um, as humans, I think it is a wonderful thing to glorify God by creating something also um, out of what God has given us and specifically creating something to praise him. So I think it's, yeah, for, for sure. I think musicians honor God through the way that they do that as well. Um, and then particularly when the, the music that they're playing or the songs that are being sang um, honors God specifically. So that was it. Just a little, little aside there. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media page. Um, And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to consider financially contributing to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.